January 2nd makes. Remember this time last year? <laughs> a year. What a difference. A trifecta of Wall Street records on Thursday. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all hitting all-time highs. The stock market has smashed one record after another, gaining $8 trillion and more in value in just this short period of time. We're, we're selling now at 21 times last year's earnings. I see that you're saying that the market is vulnerable to a pullback, but what could push stocks lower? What do you think it could be? Good morning, everyone. And thank you for joining us here today at HHS. Today's press conference aims to do two things. Provide an overview of what we know about the current novel coronavirus outbreak and highlight some of what HHS and the entire Trump administration... Stocks cratered Thursday in a stunning sell-off. The Dow Jones Industrial Average suffered its biggest one-day blow since the market crash of 1987 digging deeper into its first bear market in a decade. From a sentiment perspective, leaving aside the fact that we have no idea what the next month or two or however long it is, is going to result in in terms of the impact of the virus on the economy. I wanted to give you an update on the coronavirus situation following a meeting today that we had in the Senate with the president, the vice president and secretary Mnuchin. They shared with us some ways that they are approaching this uh, situation as it unfolds. First of all, I want to commend this administration, the president, the vice president for leading such a strong response. Everything from travel bans, travel advisories, to screening that's underway that has really slowed this. On January 24th, 2020, the Senate Health Committee got a private, all-senators briefing from administration officials on coronavirus. Among the attendees was Republican Senator Kelly Leffler from Georgia. Leffler is the richest sitting senator with a net worth of over half a billion dollars. After attending the briefing, Leffler made a tweet on her official Twitter account outlining how the briefing went. She praised the Trump administration for their quick and rapid response and told her constituents that the virus was well on its way to being under control. But at around the same time, something else was happening, something that would run counter to the optimistic picture that the senator had just outlined. The very same day as the briefing, an asset manager for Kelly Leffler began making stock trades, selling thousands of shares in stocks across multiple sectors, sectors like telecommunications, medical manufacturers, and retail. They were trades whose activity would suggest someone who was very worried about the coming pandemic, someone who did not think the administration had things totally under control. Those sales made by Leffler and her husband, Jeffrey Sprecher, who also happens to be the chairman of the New York Stock Exchange, would go on to save millions of dollars for the couple by, in effect, betting against what was about to come for the American economy. Just a little over a week after Leffler and Sprecher made their final sales and purchases, on February 24th, the Dow registered its first big drop of the year. Today, financial markets suffered historic losses. The Dow falling almost 3,000 points. That is the biggest one-day point drop of all time. Think about what this is going to do for everyday Americans and the way we live our lives. It's like we're pressing pause on the economy. but from the All the while... Georgians were falling ill and dying from the coronavirus. I'm Elliot Williams, and this is Made to Fail. 
Definitely want to know about this today. New models show Georgia, one of four states expected to see the earliest uptick in coronavirus deaths. Yeah, Lori, the site COVID Act to the COVID-19 outbreak. The new numbers from the CDC show the toll the virus is taking on Georgia. The numbers are especially alarming among African-Americans. New at 11, Ryan Kruger breaks it all down. Four U.S. senators reportedly sold stock before coronavirus fears sent the markets plunging. One congressman is asking the Securities and Exchange Commission to investigate. Elected officials are cloaked in a tremendous amount of privilege. Privileges that afford them information or opportunities not available to you or me. A lot of that's for good reasons. We place trust in our elected officials and, in return, we get their judgment. But what happens when our leaders warp who that judgment is for? What happens when those we elect don't think we're paying attention? For years, our norms around elections, ethics, and self-dealing have faded into the background. Now, in the chaos of 2020, we're seeing story after story of how our leaders protected their political and personal interests first and constituencies second. And when ethics fall by the wayside, corruption fills in the gap. There are lots of ways to talk about corruption. It's hard to even pin down a specific meaning. But for this episode, we'll use the term corruption as a means to describe the umbrella of self-dealing, personally enriching behaviors that elected officials engage in. There are some people who believe that the best way to minimize the corrupting influence of money in politics is to find candidates that are so rich that they're never beholden to any special interest. You may have heard this a lot in the 2016 cycle. I'm not using the lobbyists. I'm not using donors. I don't care. What he says he'll do, he does it. He really does it. He's not a career politician. He's not. He can't be bought off. And probably again in 2020. I'm really rich. I'll show you this. It cost me billions of dollars to become president, to, to be president of the United States. But are these benevolent self-funders really insulated from money in politics? Or is something else going on? Leffler has pledged to spend $20 million on her bid to hold on to her seat when she faces voters for the first time this November. And that's what's interesting about Leffler. She wasn't elected by the citizens of Georgia, but was rather appointed by Governor Brian Kemp after the retirement of GOP Senator Johnny Isaacson. As many of you know and have reported, we took an unconventional approach to picking Senator Isaacson's replacement. Today, I'm proud to announce that conservative businesswoman and political outsider, Kelly Leffler, will be Georgia's next U.S. Senator. When Leffler was appointed, she would immediately become the wealthiest member in Congress a real asset when it comes to elections in highly contested states. But the idea of politicians placing thumbs on the scales to grab seats is no stranger to Georgia. Look no further than the man who appointed Leffler, Governor Brian Kemp. Kemp used his power as Secretary of State to purge tens of thousands from the voter rolls. This was just before the tight election between himself and Democrat Stacey Abrams. Well, growing allegations of voter suppression are emerging in the hard-fought race for governor in Georgia. Civil rights groups are suing Kemp for putting more than 53,000 voter registration applications on hold, mostly from minority voters. And I, it is my honor at this time to introduce to you uh, the soon-to-be new governor of the state of Georgia, Brian Kemp. 
In Georgia, money and big business interests have been at the center of story after story of corruption. Georgia, and now a former candidate for governor faces fraud charges. A government watchdog group claims the family court system in one metro county is corrupt. Here we've learned more than 40 current or former Georgia corrections officers are indicted on federal charges. Nathan Deal's campaign while he was running for governor paid $90,000 to a company linked to his daughter-in-law, Denise Deal. The former Ethics Commission director who successfully sued the state, claiming she was forced out of her job for aggressively pursuing a campaign finance investigation against Governor Nathan Deal. When a business considers locating in Georgia, it helps to be able to show them that they are partnering with a state government that has its house in order. A year after Deal took office, Georgia was issued a report card on corruption. In 2012, the Center for Public Integrity ranked all 50 states in its state integrity investigation. We were not measuring the existence of corruption so much as our intent was to measure the systems in state government that are there to promote ethics, accountability, and transparency, and by doing so, limit the possibility of corruption. This is investigative journalist Gordon Whitkin. Gordon started as executive director of the Center for Public Integrity in 2008. And so in that capacity, I was in charge of the newsroom, and what the center was focused on uh, was long-form investigative reporting, uh, much of it looking at how uh, money and power uh, affected, perverted, or corrupted the policymaking process at all levels of government. During his time at CPI, Gordon oversaw the state integrity investigation. We developed on the order of 300 different specific questions to ask of each state government. And these were very, very specific metrics. These were categories like public access to information, political financing, oversight of elections, executive accountability, legislative accountability, judicial accountability, state budget process, transparency, state civil service management, how procurement... And the headline of this report? Georgia gets F in state integrity investigation. Not only did Georgia get an F, in 2012, of all the 50 states... Georgia ranked last. And Georgia, in order to be dead last, had to get D's or F's in, in, in darn near everything. Either the governor controlled the appointments to the ethics board and put his or her buddies on there, or the legislators controlled the appointments and put their cronies on there. Gordon says that another worrying trend is the key that opens up the door for corruption at the state level. Most of these legislators in the states are part-time, and that sounds good because you want a citizen legislature, but if half your legislators are insurance agents, you know, what, what chance do you have of effectively regulating the insurance industry? In other words, take a lawmaker like Leffler whose primary source of income doesn't come from lawmaking. It comes from investments in companies that she has a personal interest in. Well, taken to the extreme, that could get in the way of a politician being able to effectively legislate for the benefit of the people who elected them, at the state or federal level. But while Georgia got an F, no state got an A on this report card. 
This sort of shenanigans is going on in every state capital. We had no intention to grade on a curve, and there were depressingly many who got either Ds or Fs. There were not a lot of states doing a really good job across the board, and there were not a lot of states who were doing really well in any of the categories. But I think overall, you know, it came out as maybe a C minus or something like that. You know, there were, there were not a lot of honor grades. There really were not. The other failing grades went to Michigan, North Dakota, South Dakota, South Carolina, Maine, Virginia, and Wyoming, which were, at the time, all Republican-run states. Many state lawmakers go on to serve in Congress. For instance, 46 members of the current Congress used to be state lawmakers. And in pretty much every state across the board, state ethics, open records, and disclosure laws lacked one key feature, teeth. It seems like the first reaction of a lot of members of Congress is, how is this going to affect me? And they don't want to make their own lives more difficult and restrict their own actions. This is Noah Bookbinder. He's the executive director at Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW for short. So generally, they're really only going to legislate in this area uh, when they absolutely have to, when there is such public demand that they feel like they have to do something. And then when they do that, they're going to try to be often as narrow as possible. And there's no better example of a reactionary anti-corruption law without teeth than the Stock Act. So congressmen get a pass on insider trading. They do. Have you ever heard of something called the Stock Act? No. I've heard, I've heard about it, but not. I can't say it's an issue I spent a lot of time on, though. The fact is, if you sit on a health care committee and you know that Medicare, for example, is, is considering not reimbursing uh, for a certain drug, that's market-moving information. And if you can trade stock on, off of that information and do so legally, uh, that's a great profit-making opportunity. Members of Congress, like Leffler and their staffs, learn a lot of information that the general public doesn't know. And congressional members are granted access to information precisely because they have the ability to influence outcomes, and they're entrusted to use their knowledge to make the best decisions for the country. But prior to 2012, there were no real hard and fast rules for what sort of financial investments members of Congress could make as a result of their access to all sorts of non-public information. Around 2011, there were some prominent cases of members of Congress trading on information that they that they gained in Congress, and there was a lot of outrage. In November 2011, 60 Minutes released an investigative report suggesting that several members of Congress had engaged in extensive stock trading after learning secret details regarding the 2008 financial crisis. And so Congress acted quickly to pass legislation that really you know, sort of no-brainer legislation in some ways, although I, I don't want to take away from, from how important it was, to say that insider trading by, by Congress is, is a crime and you can't do that. And uh, you know, so that was something that, that, that you know, was Congress responding to a specific set of, of scandals with legislation pretty tightly tailored to uh, addressing those particular scandals. In 2012, the Stock Act was passed to make sure that members of Congress don't trade stocks or enrich themselves based on something amounting to insider information. One thing that's really interesting to me that is a lot less well-known, at the time, um, the Senate uh, attached 
to the Stock Act before they passed it, uh, a piece of legislation that had some pretty comprehensive anti-corruption reforms. That was it was a bipartisan piece of legislation from Senator Leahy and Senator Cornyn, uh, passed the Senate with a pretty overwhelming bipartisan support. Uh, and then when the legislation went over to the House, that, that anti-corruption piece was quietly stripped out uh, by House leadership. The Public Corruption Prosecution Improvements Act that was removed was largely unrelated to congressional insider trading, but it would have strengthened enforcement for other forms of corruption like bribery, conflicts, and gratuities. So yeah, the Stock Act exists, but even as the Stock Act was being worked on, certain members of the House were making sure that the reforms didn't have teeth. Yeah, there was never, I think, a lot of reporting on it, but the kind of word on the street was that it was then uh, Majority Leader Eric Cantor uh, who quietly stripped it out, and the Stock Act passed, and that responded to the major public scandal, but an opportunity for broader anti-corruption legislation slipped away. But the story gets even worse for the Stock Act. One thing the Stock Act was supposed to make significantly easier was the task of scouring federal lawmakers' records for signs of insider trading. If you wanted to see who traded healthcare stock just before a committee acted on a healthcare bill, it would be easy. But in 2013, President Obama signed a standalone bill reversing the part of the Stock Act that mandated that records for senior government officials and their staffs be posted online. The bill was passed quietly with little notice, even in Congress. It was passed with the intention of addressing legitimate privacy concerns. But the new bill was broader than that. Only a year after it passed, the Stock Act had been gutted of all critical transparency measures. So in short, even those members who got scrutiny because of the Stock Act have largely gotten away scot-free, because the laws that they've written for themselves weren't that strong or precise to begin with. This general approach to writing corruption legislation isn't a new thing. Congress has been cutting corners on corruption legislation as long as it's been writing corruption legislation. I think actually the news is even worse than that, which is that just like, you know, people have paid a lot of attention to a series of court cases over the past several decades that have greatly weakened the law on campaign finance reforms. Um, and so, you know, Americans by and large know now that there are very few restrictions on money that can go into politics. What almost nobody knows is that over that same time period, and even a longer time period, there have been a series of Supreme Court cases that have gradually weakened almost all of the major federal anti-corruption laws. There's a, there's a law called gratuities that is now all but useless. There's that honest services fraud law that was rendered much, much less powerful than it had been. There was a later case about Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, which, which greatly limited the, the uh, ways in which bribery laws can be used. Enter former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. And just to remind you, back in 2012, Virginia was one of the eight states that got a failing grade on the state integrity investigation. That's pretty much when all of this was going on. I mean, the McDonald case is, is to me, particularly outrageous. Because Governor Bob McDonald was, was governor of, of Virginia not long ago. And he, he accepted from a business person in Virginia 
really extensive personal gifts. So we're not talking about campaign contributions. Uh, we're not talking about inaugural funds or some of the some of the pretty blatant, but but by comparison, subtle ways that people try to influence politicians. Governor McDonald met wealthy Richmond businessman Johnny R. Williams around 2009, right after McDonald's gubernatorial election. At the time, Williams was trying to grow his fortune through dietary supplements. And the McDonald's weren't doing so well, personally as a couple or financially. In fact, in both cases, they were in dire straits. Williams plied McDonald and his wife with cash infusions and gifts that kept the McDonald's solvent, entertained them on golf outings and vacations, and literally covered the catering bill for McDonald's daughter's wedding. Over the course of their relationship, Williams also bestowed insanely expensive gifts on the McDonald's, like a $65,000 Rolex watch. Now let me stop right here. If someone you were working with just gave you a $65,000 Rolex watch out of the blue just because they like you, wouldn't you have some questions about their motivations? It didn't look like Governor McDonald had any questions about what he was supposed to do next to help Johnny Williams. And Williams testified that he'd given the gifts and loans to the McDonald's to obtain the governor's help with the testing of a drug his company was developing. So McDonald did things like arrange for this guy to have meetings with key people who worked for McDonald. People who'd be making the decisions that were relevant to Johnny Williams. Drawn into the governor's efforts were state cabinet officers and senior staff. And the Supreme Court focused on the fact that McDonald's activities were routine, saying that conscientious public officials arrange meetings for constituents, contact other officials on their behalf, and include them in events all the time. What the Supreme Court ultimately said was that it's not that, that because they couldn't point to a specific use of McDonald's own powers to help this businessman, there was no crime there. There was no bribery. So basically, the court said that in order for McDonald's behavior to be prosecuted as bribery, McDonald had to know he was doing something wrong. It's not enough to make suggestions to lower officials, and it's not enough to set up meetings or allow events for certain private sector individuals to occur in state spaces. That's not bribery. You know, I think the, the, the problem there is that it's essentially giving a blueprint for bribery. The court's ruling set a higher bar for prosecuting public corruption and said explicitly that setting up meetings or arranging events for benefactors could not by themselves serve as a public official's end of a corrupt bargain. This was a new standard. And, and remember, you know, this is a case of somebody you know, taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in personal gifts. It's, it's as unseemly as it gets. But you had these large numbers of Democratic and Republican former state attorneys general and prosecutors and governors and others coming out and filing briefs with the court saying, this is outrageous that, that he was prosecuted for this, that you have to essentially weaken these laws because they can be abused and used to go after you know, totally innocuous conduct. And, and, you know, this can be, these corruption laws could now be used to go after anyone for anything. And, you know, it, it, it's this sort of outpouring of support for Bob McDonald, who did something that I think most of us looking at it objectively would think is 
as almost as obvious corruption as you can get was was really troubling. And it has been an extraordinary 43-month uh, month, uh, journey uh, of uh, heartache, uh, but faith, uh, suffering, but now victory, a unanimous vindication by the liberal and conservative justices in the Supreme Court. Uh, I know who my friends are, and mm. I feel incredibly blessed. You know, I wish that some of the outpouring of sympathy for these poor public officials who took Rolex watches, you know, would would, would come around for people in prison for, for decades for a relatively modest drug offenses. You know, just trusting God and trusting the justice system uh, for a good outcome, and uh, that's what happened. One of the scary thing about these cases is they've all been unanimous. This, these are not party line cases. And so... There's a string of corruption cases, all different stories, all tied to different states and companies, with all pretty much the same outcome. CEOs or political figures might have been doing something sleazy, but how were they supposed to know it was illegal? These cases all signal to people with big business interests that they can move freely throughout state and federal government, promoting their own interests as they please. And unless they're incredibly flagrant or stupid in how they go about it, they won't get prosecuted, even if they do get caught. Uh, meanwhile, Congress has consistently failed to act to, to do anything about these cases in which almost two, all, each of these cases have the Supreme Court saying, hey, if Congress wants to do more on corruption, they've got to be explicit about it. They've got to pass laws that are clear and specific. So it's sort of back to you, Congress. And Congress has, has then done nothing. That means that you know, we're in a situation where not only uh, is all this money coming into politics because the, the laws have been watered down on the campaign finance. But there's also uh, more and more ability to influence officials in, in, in more old school corrupt ways by giving them cash or having, having them have financial interests that benefit when they make certain kinds of decisions and less and less ability of federal prosecutors to do anything about that. There are so many holes at this point that blocking all of them is, is, is next to impossible. The Senate will come to order. The clerk will read a communication to the Senate. Uh, by almost every expert analysis, the U.S. is in the second tier of democracies, basically in most international rankings at the level of Greece or Poland. This is Lee Drutman. He's a senior fellow at New America, and he writes about politics. Lee's been interested in money and politics, too. He started out by studying the evolution of lobbying in America. He's been looking at the organizations that spend the most on lobbying and has found that around 95% of them represent big business. And what he's found is that over the past 50 years, corporate lobbying has become more pervasive, more proactive, and more effective. So... There have always been lobbyists in Washington. That That is nothing new. What is new is that the number of lobbyists really exploded in the 1970s. And that was in response to, I think, an expanded government role in the economy. So the approach to lobbying went from being more of a let government out of our business to well, let's see how government can help us make even more money. And that became, I think, a, a tremendous wealth transfer from the American people into private industry. 
So now that Washington has become such a friendly environment for big business and private interest, there are a ton of private sector lobbyists for large corporations hanging around in the nation's capital. And the trouble with having a lot of lobbyists is that some of them are bound to give lawmakers loads of campaign cash and ask them for things. Kind of like Bob McDonald, except in the form of stuffing campaign coffers. Probably the best example of when lobbying can get to be a problem can be summed up with just one name, Jack Abramoff. Jack Abramoff may be the most notorious and crooked lobbyist of our time. He was at the center of a massive scandal of brazen corruption and influence peddling. As a Republican lobbyist starting in the mid-1990s, he became a master at showering gifts on lawmakers in return for their votes on legislation and tax breaks favorable to his clients. He was so good at it that he took home $20 million a year. As someone who befriended Washington's most powerful people, Abramoff was a whiz at influencing the right legislation for his clients. And one way he did that was to get his clients, like some American Indian tribes, to make substantial campaign contributions to select members of Congress. In the friendly government environment that Abramoff was operating in, it's a wonder that he ever got caught. But things began to unravel for Abramoff when the Washington Post published a largely unflattering portrait of him in 2004, reporting that he charged his clients 10 times more than any other lobbyist in town. Soon after, Abramoff was revealed to be at the center of a full-blown national scandal, with revelations that he bled his clients to the tune of $82 million, even as he sometimes worked for their political competitors, and that he funneled cash to his pet causes and fuzzed up the paper trail. The probes spiraled to sweep in a broad cross-section of Washington's Republican power structure, including House Majority Leader Tom DeLay and Republican Congressman from Ohio Bob Ney. Bob Ney was pretty much engaging in the same type of behavior as former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell was. And there's the opinion that if Congressman Ney had just been a little smarter about it, he may have also walked free. But he hadn't been. Abramoff's biggest helper, former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay, was indicted for conspiracy and money laundering. He was convicted for money laundering, but that was ultimately overturned. He never served any jail time. Abramoff ultimately got four years in prison for his corruption. But the deals he made, the policies he influenced, well, a lot of those are still in play today. In the end, Jack Abramoff said that, as a lobbyist, he bought 100 members of Congress from both sides of the aisle. Could you do the same thing today? I'm asking you whether you think could, the system's been the cleaned up. That I, no, yeah. no, the system hasn't been cleaned up at all. The people who make the reforms are the people in the system. And so much of the policymaking process is really outsourced to lobbyists representing private industry. If the American people understood how much Congress relies on uh, private sector lobbyists to do their basic legislating tasks, I think the American people would and should be outraged. Well, that all sounds pretty dire. But Noah Bookbinder doesn't want anyone getting it twisted. He doesn't think that this means we just throw up our hands and say, that's it. Government's inherently corrupt. You know, corruption is not uh, the default. Corruption, you know, we have we now have a system which has 
opened up to money and influence and corruption in ways that that gets in the way of good people working in government and and using the powers of government for good. So I you know I'm hoping that we are coming to a breaking point where that is demanded. Until the American people demand change, our grades are going to continue to slip until we fail the course on democracy. All the way back in 2012, Senator Leahy and Senator Cornyn had a piece of legislation that that actually addressed some of these court decisions that had weakened that, that had weakened major anti-corruption laws. If you remember, this was originally part of the Stock Act that conservatives quietly cut out before it was passed. You know, it it, it had actually very detailed and uh, precise language about what honest services fraud includes. So this law, uh, this this bill would have had some really significant fixes to criminal corruption laws. But I know that's something that Senator Leahy has continued to be interested in. And so I think that 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 it's it's really important for people to sort of know that 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 government can work for them and should and will if you're able to clear out the current incentives for for money and corruption in so many different directions. By April, the unemployment rate in Georgia was the fourth highest in the country at nearly 12%. As lines for unemployment benefits and food stamps got longer, Governor Brian Kemp was being lobbied by businesses to reopen the state of Georgia. And on April 24th, he did just that. Governor Brian Kemp announced Georgia will be gradually reopening businesses starting this Friday, as some U.S. states look at relaxing their stay-at-home orders amid protests from supporters of President Trump anxious to get back to work. We will allow gyms, fitness centers, bowling alleys, body art studios, barbers, cosmetologists, hair designers, Georgia's reopening has been the most aggressive of all the states despite warnings from health experts, putting much of the state's working class in an impossible bind, risk death at work, or risk ruining yourself financially at home. Meanwhile, businesses were also lobbying for the government to prioritize legal protections for themselves if workers or customers were to get the coronavirus. Business networks and industry organizations actually helped write the rules of the pandemic response. In other words, businesses were more concerned with protecting themselves than the very people who keep them afloat. And these moves to reopen the economy before containing the virus offered a lesson in how the political system accommodates the needs of business. I pray that all of you who are here in the state of Georgia will please ignore Governor Kemp and his admonishment for you to go out. It is not safe. And we are going to survive Donald Trump. And I declare by God's grace, we will survive Governor Kemp's reckless decision. I pray that all of you... And in Georgia, coronavirus cases are now surging. And the Justice Department has made their decision to drop its probe into Leffler. This is welcome news for the Georgia senator, who will now be able to get back to running for office. Untrue. Unfairly targeted. All because she's a strong conservative woman. The truth? Kelly Leffler donated her Senate pay to help Georgia fight coronavirus. Kelly used her personal plane, 
to bring stranded Georgians home safely. And Kelly gave a million dollars to help a Georgia hospital save lives. Kelly Leffler is all about Georgia, and it shows every day. I'm Kelly Leffler. I approve this message. Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and The Roosevelt Institute. From The Hub Project, executive producer is Laura Hatalski. Producers are Sasha Stone, Zach Price, Sophie Elliott, and Dan Crawford. Arkady Gurney is executive director. From the Goat Rodeo team, executive producer is Megan Nadalski. Producers are Shar Dreyer and Zachary Frank. Ian Enright is chief executive officer. From the Roosevelt Institute, our senior producer is Steph Sterling. Our host, that's me, is Elliot Williams. This episode was written by Megan Nadalski, me, and the good people at The Hub Project. Thanks to Noah Bookbinder, Lee Drutman, and Gordon Whitkin. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the next episode. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail Pod on Twitter, Made to Fail on Facebook, and Made to Fail Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Goat Rodeo. Keep an ear out for us.